listening to Death and Sec. One of my major goals with this podcast is to introduce listeners to a variety of perspectives on the funeral industry and changing death practices. In episode three, I talked to Dan Isard, who's a management and financial consultant to funeral homes. In episode four, I talked to Caitlin Doty, who's a non-traditional funeral director in Los Angeles with a critique of the status quo. In the next few weeks, you'll hear from Lee Webster, who's been very active in the home funeral and green burial movements, and from Amy Cunningham, who takes a very thoughtful and non-traditional approach to her second career as a funeral director. Several questions have emerged from my conversations with these folks, and some fundamental tensions have been revealed in their answers to these questions. Are funerals for the living or for the dead? What is a good funeral? Are people less interested in rituals than they were before, and if so, why? What are the pressures facing the funeral industry, and how should the industry react? Today's podcast touches on many of these questions from the perspective of a longtime leader of a funeral and cemetery industry trade association. There are three major trade associations that represent participants in the funeral and cemetery industries in the United States. The National Funeral Directors Association, known as NFDA, the Cremation Association of North America, known as CANA, and the International Cemetery Cremation and Funeral Association, known as ICCFA. ICCFA was founded in 1887 as the Association of American Cemetery Superintendents. Today, it has more than 9,000 member businesses representing all segments of the cemetery, funeral services, cremation, and memorialization profession. Today's podcast features my conversation with Bob Fells, who's the general counsel of ICCFA. Bob was formerly the executive director and the general counsel of ICCFA, retiring from his role as executive director in 2017. Bob joined the staff of ICCFA in 1983 and has been working on behalf of the funeral service profession on legal and legislative issues since 1975. so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. Well, you're, you're going to be asking me about one of my favorite topics. Good. I, I've been doing this. I've been at ICCFA. By the way, I don't know if you can see I'm wearing my ICFA t-shirt. This is official. So. Very good. <laughs> well, people accept me to wear a tie and jacket and stuff, but we're in more flexible times now. But yeah, I've been with ICFA for uh, 35 years. And my first involvement in funeral issues or legal issues dates back to 1975 when I was in law school. And uh, one of my classmates, uh, their family knew a man who was a former FTC uh, commissioner. He was now in private practice. And uh, he was scouting for law school students to pay the princely sum of five bucks an hour. to come down to the FTC building in Washington and go through the thousands and thousands of consumer complaints that the FTC had solicited, mainly from consumer groups, 
about problems they've had with funeral homes. This was the beginning of laying the groundwork to justify the FTC funeral rule. Hmm. They had established this need for it. So um, our job was to go down and to read through every letter, because there was no email, everything was snail mail and everything, and to read through what all the letters. Our job was to find consumer letters that had an actual complaint that named a funeral home and said, I had this problem with this funeral home. And we would record them because the idea was we knew we had thousands of letters, but how many of them actually had a problem? Right. And that was the idea. Long story short, and it took weeks, we used to, between classes, law school classes, used to grab a cab and go down to the FTC. And because he was a former FTC the, the commissioner, we weren't shoved into this. It's still there, room 130, which is the public documents room. Uh, with At that time, they were declaring war on businesses. So it was jam-packed with all kinds of people from law firms, everything else. We were spared that uh, because of his pull. We either got to meet in the commissioner's meeting room, I think it was on the fourth or fifth floor, very posh, big tables and cushy chairs. Or if they were using it, we got to meet in the hearing room, which looked like a courtroom. Hmm. So we really had very fancy quarters. Anyway, at the end of all this, this is my first exposure to problems in the funeral industry. And at the end of many weeks, I happened to be there just by luck on the last day because, you know, we, we would rotate. Right. Students. And I happened to be there on the last day when the last letter was read and my friend kept the overall tally. And so we all said, OK, what what do we have here? We already had a vague idea. I forget the exact number at this point, but it was like less than one percent of what were literally thousands and maybe even 10,000 complaints actually had a complaint. Hmm. State everything was yeah you would to go after those funeral homes and many of them were obvious form letters too they were just you know dear blank you know and we were you know all students we were not carrying any brief for the funeral industry or anything else we had not but we just all looked at each other and said why is the FTC wasting taxpayers money on going after these people. I mean, there's nothing. What industry wouldn't be proud to have such a low level of complaints, especially when you go out and you solicit them. Mm -hmm. You're asking for people mm -hmm. to complain. And that was my first exposure saying, hey, th this isn't right. Th this isn't right. And that's kind of been a continuing theme <laughs> as far as government regulation at the federal level, you know. Well, it's. I mean, that's such an interesting sort of origin story, and I'm glad you started by telling me about that, because that was my first question for you, which is how you got interested in all of this in the first place. Um, because you don't come from a funeral family. You didn't grow up in this. So it was your exposure to these letters that made you interested in the first place. Although there was one little footnote to that. When I was in the seventh and eighth grade, my family had moved. We lived on Long Island. We knew one place. I went to a new school when I was in Catholic schools. And across the street, I could look out to my classroom window across the schoolyard, and there was a funeral home mm. there. And the the daughter of the funeral director was in her class. Her name hmm. was Mary. One day, I guess to get us a little experienced in public speaking, uh, the the good nun had us um, arranged. It was a rotating schedule, but every Friday morning, two or three of us were assigned to get up and just give a little talk. Pretty much anything we want it could be newspaper headlines, things like that. And Mary, the funeral director's daughter, uh, when her turn came, she got up there and just gave a little talk of what it was like to live in, 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 in a funeral home. Mm. They, they lived too. And I remember sitting there having no idea what was in store for me in mm -hmm. the future. 
and listening and saying, that's very interesting. I mean, it was, she gave a very nice account and, and no, one, no one laughed, no one made fun of her, but everyone said, hey, yeah, that, that is, that's interesting. So now that was really my first exposure. That, of course, going to a couple of funerals of yeah. people in our neighborhood who die and those things. But um, that, that was my very first, I think, exposure, even thinking about it as a business, as a profession, and then fast forward to my law school days. But that's basically my background back up for a second and talk about ICCFA. So the organization or the predecessor organization has been around since the late 1800s, right? 1887, to be exact. And I, I came there shortly thereafter. <laughs> or so it seems. Perhaps unlike some of the other larger organizations, NFDA and KNA, ICCFA represents, it seems, three different sectors of the death care services industry, right? Funeral services, uh, professions, cemeteries, and crematories. Do you, has that been a challenge? And as the cremation rate rises, do you find those groups are in conflict? Do they have more in common than they have opposed to one another? Yeah, that, that's a question, yeah, that I've been asked often. You know, why aren't our members at each other's throats killing each other? Not only now, but even year, years ago when we first, uh, we, we were a cemetery association up to, what, 1996. And then, and people often theorize, oh, you must have really been hurting for members. So that's why you expanded. And actually what happened, if you want to know the real truth. I do. We got to a point when half of our board, you know, like 33 directors still are, half of our board were cemeterians, all of them, obviously. But they also own funeral homes. They own crematories or they manage them. They even own monument businesses and florists. Mm. So the association itself wasn't really cemetery anymore. And we realized that we were only representing a portion or part of our members' businesses and even the Americans. We were the American Cemetery Association. So we weren't just cemeteries anymore. That was actually totally inaccurate. Mm -hmm. We weren't American anymore because we had members in like 25 foreign countries. Now, the mm -hmm. bulk of our members were in the United States and actually still mm -hmm. are. Mm -hmm. But now I think it's like 32 foreign countries. Mm -hmm. But So we were really international. And we were cemetery, funeral, crematory. And by the way, even monument dealers can join. They, they can join as full voting members. And, you know, mm -hmm. So, But the question is, why isn't everybody fighting and everything? And actually, you'd probably enjoy this. You, you have to go back to the old medieval definition of the trade guilds and all that stuff. What they are and what they've always been is they've been competitors, People who compete far, you know, fiercely out there in the marketplace, but because they share common problems, common challenges, they get together around the table to tackle their common problems that if they just handle them alone, each of them would probably be overwhelmed by them. Joining forces, sharing stuff, addressing problems, they can then many times come out on top and resolve these common problems. So they are still fierce competitors out in the marketplace. That hasn't changed. But to tackle common problems, they agree to meet, not kill each other, and focus on what is something that is bad for everyone. And that's what we do. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's what anyone really, that's really what the trade association is. And of course, especially in this country, and probably other countries too, where, where there is an antitrust exemption for competitors who meet under the banner of a tr duly organized trade association. The, the legal assumption is that whatever they're meeting about, it's, it can't be assumed to be in violation of antitrust laws or anything else. 
now you're smart to have agendas and keep records and things like, well, what did you guys talk about? But anyone who says, oh, those guys are meeting to fix prices, well, the burden is on them to show that, not on us to show, oh, no, we haven't. So that's a nice legal safeguard that trade associations have. And that's a good reason for people to join a trade association. So let, let's talk about the funeral world for just a second, since that's uh, especially how your interest in this area got started. So it sounds like your review of those letters led you to an early conclusion that there wasn't really a need for that rule in the first place. Well, the, the, the letters did not reveal that if funeral homes were required to disclose prices up front, written prices up front, a lot of these complaints would go away. They weren't really geared toward that so much. I won't, can't say that there wasn't any of it. Mm-hmm. People would come in and say, how much do you charge? And they would say, okay, before I tell you that, let me describe. Yeah, it's, it's a right. classic thing of you have to sell the, the sizzle before you mm-hmm. sell, sell the steak. Mm-hmm. And it just, it's common salesmanship. Mm-hmm. But it was reason that a funeral transaction is not a common thing. It's wrought with emotion. People can be grieving at the time of, of death and that, you know, they're not thinking clearly. So there are certain aspects of a funeral consumer transaction that makes it different from buying a car or a house or other maybe big ticket items. Mm-hmm. And that, that's understandable. And so there was something to be said about some sort of upfront price disclosure so people know what they're dealing with. They're not waiting till when the funeral director feels like getting around to it. There, there, there was something there I think most fair-minded people mm-hmm. uh, admitted. The one thing that did strain things that the FTC to its credit changed, and that was you have to give prices over the phone. And that was not on request. That was changed in 1994. Mm-hmm. The original rule from 85 said even if people don't ask, you have to say, okay, here are my prices on the phone. Like, no, 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 I, don't oh, want, no. I, just, I just want to, you know. So that was kind of absurd, and the FTC, to its credit, after 10 years, uh-huh. did say, okay, you have to get prices on the phone, but only on requests. Mm-hmm. If they don't request it, you're not required uh, to, to, to do that. So that, that was a big help right there. But these days, I mean, um, I think the profession is so geared that you'll probably find more people defending the price list requirements that, you know, it's more informed consumers. You get that suspense over with. And it's just ingrained. In- yeah, uh, exactly. In fact, I remember the week after the funeral rule went into effect in 1984, I think it was April. I was driving home, had my radio on, nobody had satellite radio and stuff, <laughs> and a local funeral home was advertising their services, which was in itself kind of unusual. I don't really, but what, what made me remember this in particular was they never mentioned the funeral rule, but they said, come in and pay us a visit. We will give you our prices in writing as soon as you come in. <laughs> or if you can't come in, call us on the phone. We'll give you the prices over the phone. And I was sitting driving home smiling and say, gee, they didn't mention because we have to now do this under penalty of federal law. Yeah. Uh, but I love the way people so quickly turned it into a sales tool. Yeah, yeah. Look how so, transparent yeah. we are. You want to charge? Come on in. Yeah. They had to do it, you know. Yeah. So I, I said, that's good. I like that attitude of, yeah. you know, 
turning it into a sales tool. So what do you think about the proposals to extend the funeral rule? Well, there's two proposals, I think, to extend the funeral rule that I'm aware of. One is to um, apply it to cemeteries as well. And um, I think you just suggested you didn't think that was a great idea or not, or not necessary anyway. And the second is to make Priceless available online. Yes. Um, let me talk about the second one first because that, sure. that's a new one, the online posting of prices. The thing Which about is required it, by some states, right? California, I think. I haven't read the statute, but our members from California say actually there are options in it. Mm. It's not a mandate you must post your but Apparently, there is some wiggle room that our members out there are, are satisfied with. They think it's, it's, it's okay now. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the original thing was a mandate. Whether you like it or not, you're going to post your price. Apparently, it's a little more nuanced now, and mm-hmm. that apparently has made people okay with it. Mm-hmm. Um, we met with the FTC staff, and we've talked to them about it several times. And um, we know a lot of members already are posting their prices on their websites on their own. They don't need any government mandate. In fact, my, my, my mother-in-law died just about five years ago actually in Florida. And um, we went to the website where we wanted the funeral and the burial's a combo. And everything was on the website. We, we could have, and we pretty much did make all our decisions and prices right on the website. And we, of course, later came in, of course, too. But it was all there. It was very easy. It was it was convenient. And, um, and you can say, well, Bob, you're not the usual, you know, funeral consumer, but still mm-hmm. I don't arrange these things every day. Mm-hmm. And so there was a lot I didn't know. I didn't know how much prices went up since the last time I was involved with one, which was about 25 years earlier. Mm-hmm. So, you know, no, there's a lot I didn't know. Mm-hmm. And I like that. But we we are in favor. I see if CFA is favor as far as our position has evolved, that um, if it's an option. If the FTC wants to encourage funeral providers, however, they're just defined now or in the future mm-hmm. to post your prices online, we don't have a problem with that. We've taken it a step further, which I think the FTC staff is intrigued with. And we said, how about any funeral provider that does post their prices in line with the GPL requirements, post them on their website. Mm-hmm. They are considered in compliance with the price disclosure requirements of the rule, and therefore they are exempt from getting any of these secret shoppers stop mm. by mm. because they're online. Right? Mm-hmm. And uh, well, they, they, and to be fair, the staff could not give us a definitive answer. They could give us their own personal reaction, and th- they liked the idea. It was worth you know, they're, they're they're considering it. Yeah, as an incentive, you mm-hmm. post your prices online, which really gets them out there. Right. Okay, we won't right. fool around with these secret shoppers coming in and pretending they're consumers right. and all this other stuff. Because uh, then that's not the sole source of information for the consumer, right? They don't. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. And and um, now we're sort of prepared. When they really haven't didn't ask us this, but we were prepared to the question. Well, not everybody has a laptop or a consumer. Yeah. Well, for one thing, you can go to your public library of choice, but even that's easily overcome if uh, a funeral home or funeral provider sets up a little desk or kiosk with the PC or whatever, Mm -hmm. just sit down and say, okay, here's our webpage and all our prices, you know, Mm -hmm. knock Mm -hmm. yourself out. Or if anyone got questions, we're right here. And yeah, Uh, to eliminate all the secret shopper, there still tends to be some issues connected 
with the secret shoppers, the timing of the price list, whether um, the price list, the GPL conforms with the requirement. Um, there was recently a case, I don't know how well publicized it was, and I think it did get straightened out, but one funeral home was apparently cited, at least initially, for a violation because they gave the GPL to the secret shopper right at the top of the thing, as they should. Mm -hmm. Apparently, they never said, and this is yours to keep. Oh. And if you look at the funeral rule, it simply says you are to give them the list to retain. It doesn't say, mm -hmm. however, you must inform the shopper. It is theirs to keep. Didn't say that. So they were initially cited. They went around, and I believe the FTC, again, to its credit, backed off and said, but initially, you know, it's very disturbing, you know, to come in. Another problem with the funeral rule, which is across the board, is in the old days and for many, many years, uh, a violation, one violation was like $16,000 fine. Mm -hmm. Today, it's over $40,000 for one. That's for a violation. Now, they do have the FROP program, which is an excellent right. program, NFDA you know, administers it and everything. And that's a good way to get out of you know, going to court or paying a much larger fine than the, the amount. The rate. And that, that's a program for first time offenders, right? That they can do some remedial training of staff, et cetera. And, and then they, they aren't fined for that initial violation. Well, they're not fine, but they have to Make a voluntary fee. donation, which is required. Uh -huh. It's a voluntary required <laughs> donation to the U.S. Treasury uh -huh. based on like 0.8% of their annual gross receipts. I may not have that right, but so, uh -huh. something like that. It's like a gift yeah. or something. I never, yeah. I don't know. It's a mandatory <laughs> gift yeah. that they have to give. And was it a five-year program in FROP and everything? Uh -huh. um, one thing that is new, and you may not have heard about it. We've been trying to get word out um, that just came up, by the way, we've always been after the FTC staff because we, we meet with them every year. Mm -hmm. And we, we say, look, when you find a violator, you never tell the employer which employee failed to give out the price list in a timely time. How can they take remedial action? If they don't need if it's a larger funeral home, there are several right. people who would do this. Who right. is the weak link in the chain? Right. And many of these people, these larger business, they have ongoing training programs and they can prove it. Right. So they train there. They, they put the time and the effort and the, the money in and then somebody doesn't bother giving out the GPL. Well, the feeling is, doesn't the employer have a right to know who the offending employee is? Right. And um, the reaction we got from the staff is, well, yeah, but, you know, we're afraid that employee is going to get fired. So right. I want that to happen. And we said, well, okay, but that's not your concern, is it? Mm -hmm. it? Really, is it? And they said, well, now that you mention it, yeah, I guess it's not really any of our business. Mm -hmm. So our last visit, we met with them on May 9th. Um, they said, we didn't even bring it up yet. We would bring it up every year of saying, hey, come on, guy, are you, are you ever going to tell mm -hmm. him? They brought it up and said, by the way, uh, now on request, we will tell you know, an, an offending funeral provider the name of the employee that failed mm -hmm. to give out the GPL. We nearly mm -hmm. fell off our chairs. I said, oh, well, where, where did you publish something? Did we mm -hmm. miss something? Mm -hmm. No, we didn't publish anything. No, we're just telling you. <laughs> well, when, well when, when did, did it go into effect? Uh -huh. Well, um, now. <laughs> it, was, it was the strangest thing. Yeah. You never announced it. It goes into effect yeah. now. Yeah. 
And so we, so that afternoon, we got word out by our wireless email newsletter to our members and say, hey, uh -huh. guess what? If you are you know, cited, you at least get to know who the employee was. But that was nice because that, that was something, particularly to the larger businesses. It was annoying to them because they put in the time and the effort and the money and they still get caught. Mm -hmm. And it's like, okay, who, who's the person? Who's the weak link that's not right. doing what they're supposed? Are they disgruntled? Them? Are they doing it deliberately to get us in trouble? You know, right. Right. I, you know, if they knew, um, nobody will ever find out. Well, now the word is out that the yeah. FTC will, on request, reveal the identity employee. Yeah. And we, we just think that's that goes toward helping compliance. Mm -hmm. And anything that helps sharpen it, that make the individual employees feel they have something at stake now. Mm -hmm. because their employer will know if they failed this out. It's good. It's good stuff. Well, I, I wanted to make sure that we had time to talk about one of the things that I know that you're particularly interested in, which is how American society has changed its view of funerals. Um, and you've been, as you said, involved in this area for 35 years, so you've seen um, some of these kinds of changes. Do you, do you want to talk a little bit about what you think has changed um, in the past decade or so and, and what the causes of that are? Well, it's it's longer it's longer than that. I mean, it's been like all great changes; they're very slow. Mm. They're so slow they're almost imperceptible, until one day you look around and say, "Wait a minute, this what is happened? different than the way it was 20 years ago, 30 years ago, things like that." There has been a whole change in the public's attitude, the American public's attitude toward funerals, funeral procedures, funeral rites, things like that, a burial the memorialization with a headstone and everything. So this goes beyond the increase in cremation rate. Oh, move yeah. Away from about, yeah. So can you, t I mean, how, what do you think the characteristics of that change are? Okay. To put it this way, we're, we're not alone. That's the good news. There's been huge changes, societal changes in how very traditional things were viewed. And the way I like to put it is, I've never done this. I'd, I'd like to do do this. I'd like to address an audience of our professional members mm -hmm. and say, okay, folks, everyone here who say 20 or 30 years ago went to religious services on a regular basis, every Sunday, every other Sunday, but you pretty much regularly went 20, 30 years ago. Put up your hand. Mm -hmm. I think I'd probably see a sea of hands. That's mm -hmm, mm -hmm. okay, fine. Now, today, how many of you today go to a religious service on a regular basis? I think I'd see a fraction of the hands. Mm -hmm. So if we can acknowledge, yes, the public's attitude has changed greatly toward funerals, as in not to have them, okay? Mm -hmm. It's also changed in relationship that if I don't go to church, I'm not going to go to hell. Mm -hmm. You figure out how to get people back into the churches on Sunday, and you can probably use whatever you come up with to get people to say, yes, I want a traditional funeral. Mm -hmm. So if we did the hand raising exercise and ask people how often they went to religious services 20, 30 years ago, lots of hands. If we ask them who still feels like they have a strong religious identity or however you want to phrase it, right, we'd probably also see a sea of hands, but they're not connecting oh, yeah. that with the physical act of going to a service anymore. Right. You know, you have to ask the same question because I think you get the same sea of hands of saying, how many of you today believe in God, believe mm -hmm. in hereafter? I think you still get the same hands raised, but right. how many of you feel it's necessary to leave your home mm -hmm. and drive to a house of worship? 
mm-hmm. once a week or every couple of weeks, whatever, mm-hmm. uh, to spend an hour or more there. How many of you feel the need to do it the way you felt the need to do it 20, 30 years ago? Mm-hmm. Then I mm-hmm. think the hands will go down. So that's interesting, right? Because then it doesn't, it's not necessarily true, I think, that Americans have changed the way that we view death. What, that's that's probably not the right way to phrase it, but it's the ritual that we don't think the ritual what, is what important. About, what you do about it when you, you have a, a, a death, and um, this is where it's good to go back into history a little bit. I don't want to belabor it, but, you know... Um, Years ago, uh, you know, antibiotics only came on the market around 1940. Mm-hmm. And if you got infected, more people of all ages died of an abscessed tooth, mm-hmm. strep throat. Mm-hmm. Calvin Coolidge's son, who was an adult, he died playing tennis after tennis because he had a, a blister. Oh, my gosh. It, it burst and it became infected. This was in the 1920s. Uh-huh. And there were no antibiotics to save him. And he died uh-huh. of a blister. Yeah, (laughs) death was so common at all ages, infant mortality, child mortality, teenage at all ages that you didn't have to go very long without knowing somebody Mm -hmm. in your neighborhood, at your school, at your work who had a death in their family. And just so to avoid embarrassment or something, hey, Joe, how's the wife and kids? Oh, my two year old daughter just died of strep throat last night. People wore a black armband. Mm-hmm. And if you look actually at old photographs of people gathered, you will see one or two people in those photos with a black armband, no matter what mm-hmm. the occasion is. Mm-hmm. And that was a way of signaling to people you had a death in your family, so they didn't inadvertently put their foot in your in their mouth by asking how the wife and kids, because you might not get the answer you expected to get. So that was a tip off of, oh, Joe, what what happened? Mm-hmm. Well, we don't do that anymore. And I think it's largely thanks to the the advent of antibiotics that saved so many lives on things that used to be lethal mm-hmm. many, many years ago. So first thing, we're not dealing with going to funerals anywhere near as much as we used to. It's even been said that the average American can live to middle age before someone really close to them dies and they yeah. experience grief. Yeah. And I, I personally have known people walk around and say, I don't know. I just feel bad. I don't know what's going on because of the first time in their life, they lost someone close to this and they're feeling bereavement and grief and they've never experienced that emotion before in their entire life. They don't know how to deal with it. Mm-hmm. What's going What's happening to me? Why mm-hmm. do I feel this way? Mm-hmm. And then when they learn, when they find out what it is, they can put it in context. But that's it. And because you don't have people going to funerals very much, because happily we're all living a lot longer. Uh, you don't have any experience. You don't have any reaction. No one really sees the need for a good funeral. Mm-hmm. That is a catharsis for the people who are grieving. Um, you don't have any of that. So you have people um, that, again, are going into their 40s and 50s and longer, and they have yet to really experience that. The other thing, and I think the, the profession has to take its share of blame or credit on this, mm-hmm is the whole prearrangement thing, which I think is great. From a consumer point of view, it's smart mm-hmm. to make plans, pre-plan, pre-need, even pre-pay. Um, but the problem is the profession really 
get it, got into that because so many of the typical consumer complaints has to do with making an at need funeral arrangements. Right. The grief factor. So do it in advance of need. You're calm. There's no rush. There's no time pressure. If you don't like what you see, you don't like the prices, you're going to walk away. You, mm -hmm. you don't need to do anything now, today or tomorrow or the day after. Mm -hmm. What happened, though, was when we started encouraging people to plan their own funerals, I think we all assumed that, of course, they will plan for a traditional funeral. Mm -hmm. And instead, when people said, you know, oh, OK, you're right. I will plan my own funeral. I can tell you exactly what my funeral plans are. Mm -hmm. I don't want a funeral. Mm -hmm. I don't want people seeing me dead, <laughs> laying in the casket. I don't care what right. we make. No. Right. I, my friends and family see me dead, you know. Yeah. And that's what happened. And like, wait a minute, when we encouraged you to pre-plan, we thought you were going to, you know, do mm -hmm. A, B, and C. And now you're coming up with what we call direct disposition. Mm -hmm. When I die. Get my body over to a crematory, get me cremated, get my remains boxed, go down to my favorite golf course or the seaside or whatever, scatter my remains to the four winds and then go to Joe's Barn Grill, hoist a few in my honor, and I'm done. I'm happy. Because I don't want to be a burden, right? I'm... I don't want to be a burden. But see, that was one reason to pre-plan that, number one, you don't want to burden your family with making these decisions. And, gee, I wonder what dad would have wanted or what would mom have wanted. So you pre-plan for that. And you don't want it to be a financial burden. So you pre-fund, you pre-pay so you don't burden your family with, with the payment. But again, the joker in the deck was people say, great idea. I'll make it real simple. I want a direct disposition. <laughs> and here, here's here's the $500 you'll need to, to pull it off. Yeah, that was something. And I've been to a few of those where uh, one, a lady we knew, a neighbor, um, she was very ill. She passed away. Uh, she was cremated. Uh, and they brought the urn to her church and they had a nice church service. And that was it. And I think the family took the urn home. That was it. And I, I've heard of other things happening. Uh, a gentleman just this past Sunday where I'm living in a, a condo here uh, passed away. We just met the guy and he was 80 years old. He had a failing heart. He shockingly, I'm still in shock. Oh, dear man, I only knew him for like three weeks, mm. but he's gone now. Well, his family is, is here. He lived alone, but his brother or something is here. And it looks like yesterday they went off to a funeral home with some of the neighbors who've known them. But I'm still waiting. I'm going to finally go and ask them. I said, mm -hmm. is there going to be a funeral? I'd, I'd like to go and pay my respects. Is there going yeah. to be a funeral? So far, there's nothing. There's no announcement around. Mm -hmm. um, I'm wondering. Uh, and this this gentleman, I think, had prepared all this. I'm, I'm wondering if he just said, no, cremate me and take me home or scatter me. On just the do a small, yeah. Yeah, sure. I, I know. But that is what has changed so much. So the question is, I mean, and what, one another thing that's changed, I mean, really changed is like there's no more three day viewing. The three day. Remember yeah. that? As a kid, I remember going to funeral services. We weren't there for three days, but I remember hearing that this may be day two of three days or whatever. Yeah. And of course, that was because before jet travel was so common, people had needed time to travel to drive or right. to train and things. So all that is changed. Then the last thing I think I would mention is that helped the profession to make sure people did plan traditional funerals, traditional burials, or anything. Was there was a certain societal pressure. If 
Mrs. Jones lost her husband. And all of a sudden we heard that she wasn't going to do a funeral. Mm-hmm. It's like, hmm, I wonder what. Mm-hmm. Maybe she didn't like her husband very much. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Maybe they don't have any money. That's it. Mm-hmm. They don't have any money. And she didn't like him. So, and everyone kind of was aware of this because some people probably engaged in that type of gossip themselves. And then mm-hmm. that, and they're on the receiving end and they're saying, well, no, I didn't like my husband, but I got to give him a funeral. <laughs> people are going to talk about me. It was such a strong social expectation that this is what exactly. you do. Right? So a lot of people had traditional funerals and burials, not because they believed in it or wanted it, but because they didn't want to be gossiped about. Mm-hmm. And that's the same reason why a lot of people went to church. Mm-hmm. Because in those days, if you weren't there, people would say, you know, you know, uh, John Jones there? Never mm-hmm. seen him in church. Never mm-hmm. seen him. Yeah. And that was bad. And for people who had a role in, in the in the in the community, businessmen, businesswomen, insurance agents, realtors, you know, whose pictures you see in the church bulletins all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, they couldn't afford to have people saying, you know, that guy never goes to church, you know. Mm-hmm. So they needed, here I am, you know, here mm-hmm. and yeah. So all that's gone. Mm-hmm. All that's gone. And today, if there's any remnant, if someone says someone dies and say, well, how come you have a funeral for him? Just say, oh, it was his wish. Mm-hmm. He told us, I don't want any funeral. Oh, OK. And then, the, oh, that's what the decedent wished. That's mm-hmm. OK. Since when did the decedent get to call the shots on the funeral? Which mm-hmm. brings me to another old saying that needs to be revived desperately. I say it all the time, but nobody copies me. Funerals <laughs> are for the living. Mm. They're for the living. They're for the survivors, the grievers, to get together, share that community of grief, and to move on and things like that. It's not for the dead guy. You know, it's just, it's so interesting because I think there's definitely disagreement on that point about who who's the interested party and whose interests are being served. And I think all the things that you've just talked about in terms of what's changing, that funerals definitely used to be for the living. There was this whole community aspect. We're notifying the community, right, about a a death has occurred and we're giving an opportunity to process grief. And so I wonder if this changing attitude on the part of some people is related to kind of bringing, bringing it out of the community and making it you know, less less of a ritual and and more of the decedent's last opportunity to control some aspect. Yeah, um, but it's yeah, it's actually anti-historical. You can I mean funerals were always even back in ancient times were a way for the public, the community, to pay homage to the decedent. Mm-hmm. And that, and, and somehow, as again, and this in this country, it only happened, say, maybe starting in the 1990s, where we started getting people with this attitude of it's my funeral. To me, it's like to use an analogy. It's like you and your friends are going to dinner. I'm not going, but I'm going to decide what you have for your dinner. Hmm. And I, I say, maybe, maybe I'm paying for it. Let's even take it one step further. Since I'm paying for the dinner, you're going to eat what I order for you to eat, even though it's, because actually it's my dinner. I'm paying for it, right? Well, that doesn't make any sense. And I think students who are going to be going, and hopefully we believe in a better place, they're not going to be sitting there saying, well, I sure planned a great funeral for me. You know, presumably they're not going to be there. Um, you know, uh, I think the whole issue was summed up by Bob Hope, <laughs> the, 
the comedian. And then, I don't know, this may have been his last joke. I don't know. He, you know, he lived to be 100 years old. And I, I read that shortly before his death, his wife asked him, Bob, is there anything special you would like for your funeral? And he gave what is, from our point of view, the perfect answer. Bob Hope said, surprise me. <laughs> yeah. He didn't say, okay, I want this. I want that. Don't do this. Don't do that. He said, yeah. surprise me. And he had, I think what he was kind of saying was, look, I ain't going to be here. So you do whatever works for you and everyone mm -hmm. is fine. Whatever helps you, whatever, move on. It's fine with me. Just do yeah. it. I don't know where this ego comes in. I mean, do you think it's a baby boomer phenomenon? You mean the me, me generation? That's it. Um, it could be. I mean, yeah, I I can only report what I see and trends I hear. The why, that's open to discussion. I mean, uh, yeah. Why don't people go to church anymore? Obviously, they don't feel the need to. Uh, let me show you just very briefly something. It sounds so basic. I almost sound like I'm stupid for not having come up with it decades early. This just occurred to me recently and why you can save yourself a lot of discussion, debate, and argument with people. Why do some people believe in God? Why do some people not believe in God? Why do some people like the Republican Party? Why do some people like the Democratic Party? Why do some people have politically left-wing views, other people have politically right-wing The answer is the same in all these cases, because that's where they want to be. That's where they're comfortable. I'm comfortable believing in God. I like it. Or I feel a lot better by not believing in God. Yeah, that, that works for me. That, I feel comfortable rooting for the Democratic Party for whatever reasons. That, that's my comfort level. I want to be there. Don't ask me to articulate it. And don't tell me, and this is why, why arguments start. If people talk about ideas and positions, they usually can have a fairly decent conversation, even if they But when people talk about their feelings, Nobody wants to be told their feeling is wrong. And when you tell me, I feel like God exists, oh, you're wrong. No. Mm -hmm. Then people get angry. Mm -hmm. Don't tell me my feeling. Mm -hmm. If you want to talk factually, well, here's why I think God probably doesn't exist. A, B, C. Mm -hmm. People can say, hmm, I see where you're coming from, but I think you're wrong. People can deal mm -hmm. with that. But when people say that my left-wing views are wrong, no, mm -hmm. then you're going to have a fight on your hands. But you explain, in principle, maybe why or why right-wing views long or something. People can digest that better. But the reason people feel as they do is because it works for them. So mm -hmm. save your breath. <laughs> Don't say, wait a minute, because that's where they want to be. And for some reason, again, people not going to church every week or whatever, that's where they want to be. It works for them. They don't see any downside. They don't believe I mean, the only people who really said you're going to go to hell if you don't go to church are the churches. <laughs> they kind of said, wait, isn't that sort of self-serving? Yeah, it's funny. Nobody. And then here, let, let me look up in the Bible where it's, nah, it didn't say anything in there about, you know. So yeah. I think we have a visitor. We'll quiet the dog down in a minute. Yeah. Uh, um, so, yeah, that's you can save yourself a lot of arguments and also a lot of hurt feelings. I think the toughest place to have a debate on anything is online and social media. But I have found that, for example, instead of getting who's right, the Democrats or the Republicans, liberals and conservatives, you know, you can have a full-blown discussion about those differences by 
phrasing it simply of what do you think, what do you feel is the proper role of government in our lives? Right. Right. You can have a beautiful discussion. Well, I feel the role of the government is to take care of people. Okay. Mm -hmm. I feel the role of the government is to basically have law and order and get out of the way so people can pursue their own futures. People can have a nice, calm, intelligent discussion on that basis. Yeah. Because you're not dealing with feelings, you're dealing with ideas. Now, yeah. getting back to our issue at hand, how did we get <laughs> how did yeah. get to the idea of, hey, it's my funeral, so I'm going to tell you what you're going to do, and what I want is nothing. <laughs> you know, that's mm -hmm. what really hurts. It, there's nothing wrong with people saying, okay, I'd like a, a white casket with a nice little floral design, and, oh, I'd like this type of headstone, you know, that has this on it, or, you know. Uh, yeah, our profession can handle that. That's fine, and we can help them. It's when they have this zero stone zero, whatever it's called, is just just cremate me, and you know scatter me to the four winds. Thank you. Uh, yeah, um, that that's that that's tough on us. So the question is, how do you put the value? Another sort of side issue is also funerals cost too much. Cars cost too much. Houses cost too much. Groceries cost too much. How did we get that? A quick anecdote. When I was back in the 70s, and I was reviewing all those consumer complaints that were coming in, uh, what typical complaint was, funerals just cost too much. They they don't cost, they 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 should be like they used to. Yeah, everything was cheap. Back when yeah. Ago. In the 1990s, when they did the, 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 the second review, they also solicited... Of the funeral, yeah, role. yeah, the funeral. They did a, yeah. they got a much smaller response, and I could actually, I went through all the letters they received in a couple of hours. One mm. letter stood out. It said funerals cost too much. Why don't they charge reasonable prices like they did back in the 1970s? <laughs> well, <laughs> I was there, and they were complaining then. You know, it yeah. all depends on what you what you want to do. If you don't see value in something, paying ten cents is too much. Definitely. So when people say funerals cost too much or cars cost too much yeah. or this costs too much, right. it's the right. value. They feel the cost is not equal to the value. The value is down here and the cost is up here. You have to get this out. And part of it is, you know, that's where you have to know something about. It. Most people know a lot about cars. So they can understand why this new car is $10,000 and this new car is $50,000. They understand, even though they kind of look alike, don't they? Yeah, they same design, and yeah, people people understand that. We have the same differences with funerals or cemeteries or headstones or cremation or anything else or urns. Some people have designer urns that cost thousands and thousands of dollars. They're not cheap. It's the value. So maybe that's also part of the challenge is people seem because of the unfamiliarity with funerals. People live there; they don't die like they used to. They don't. They know a lot about cars because we usually ride in cars every day. So we know a lot about them, how they work, what they cost, repairs, insurance, everything else. We know all about cars, but funerals, no. So pe all people look at the price tag. They don't understand what they're getting, why the price is where it is, and all they say is that costs too much. And they're really speaking in an abstract. Well, why does it? How much? How much should it cost? Right. Right. Those are big challenges facing, I suppose, all of us, right? To try and figure out what the future is going to hold for how we as a society 
want to see people transition and, you know, how we want to memorialize and all of those things. It's going to be complicated and interesting. Yeah, but what we can do about it, it's a fair question of, okay, it's nice to identify. I mean, you have to diagnose things before you can treat them. Right. Okay, if you don't know what, what it is, how can you treat it? How can you move forward and make plans? So I think we have a little of that. Um, I love to listen to the motivational speakers. Mm. Our meetings and other meetings, there, um, they all have a different way of approaching it. Most of them use humor, and it's a different type of humor to make their points. But, you know, if you boil it down to its essence, they all kind of say the same thing. And I don't mean this demeaning because in some ways, you know, you have to say the same thing, but different mm -hmm. way. Mm -hmm. And the three things they always seem to be the takeaways are if you want to do better in your business, improve your business or just make sure it lasts, whatever, you have to you have, you have to get organized. Mm -hmm. You have to have goals and you have to pursue those goals every day, even Saturday and Sunday, maybe. Yeah, that's really all they're saying. You take away all this other stuff. Right. That's all they're saying. But mm -hmm. in giving the message to our people, say your typical funeral director, who who may have been um, learning their business model. I think most of funeral directors still working today learned when they were young and from their elders, learned a funeral business model based on the, 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 the 1950s. Right. If you look at the industry from 1850, 1900, 1950, 2000, you can see big changes in each of those. So we've always been changing. Mm -hmm. There was never a time when, gee, isn't it? Because you're just looking at a snapshot. Most people who came into this industry, say in the 70s and the 80s, what they learned was the 1950s business model. That's right. when societal pressure said, of course you've got to give your husband a funeral. Of course you've right. got a casket and a burial plot and a headstone. What are you, crazy? Do you know what people will say about you? Yeah. That's where they got in. So they got used to saying, well, let nature take its course. The mor mm -hmm. mortality rate is still 100%. Mm -hmm. And I'll just wait for my phone to ring or mm -hmm. family to come through the door, and that's all I have to do. All these m motivational speakers today, and that I've heard for many years now, they all are telling people the same thing. You got to get up out of your office chair. Right. You have got to be entrepreneurial. Mm -hmm. Like, what? No, no, I have to wait for my phone to ring or mm -hmm. the doorbell. To ring. No, 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 no. Mm -hmm. And that's what all this get organized, have goals, pursue those goals every day. That's what all this boils down to. You are now an entrepreneur. And that goes against the grain of everything so many of these people learned because it was all based on the 1950 model is people will come to you. Mm -hmm. Take your little ad in the paper, put your funeral home on the church calendar that they give out. And that's all the marketing you've got to do. So people are going to independently see the value of, of the traditional funeral. That would be the 50s model, right? I mean, you didn't have to... Oh, people um, know the value. Everybody knows that. Right. Everybody's going to funerals. Right. They know that. And they, they know a funeral director was typically someone who you knew about town. Mm -hmm. In a typical town, everybody sort of knew who the mayor was, even just to say, hi, mayor. Oh, hi, Joe. You know, mm -hmm. and everybody knew the policeman on the beat or whatever. And everybody knew the funeral director. If there was more than a couple of funeral directors. Everybody mm -hmm. knew this. Mm-hmm. How many people today know your local funeral director? Mm -hmm. No, no. <laughs> they don't even know the local mayor. They, it's different. It's just all, all different. 
Well, let me ask you one last question if I can. So where do you see all this going? How do you how do you think the industry is responding? Where do you think the industry is going to be in the next 10 or 20 years? Is it going to look about the same as it does now? Or are there going to be some big changes that you see just starting? 20 years may not be long enough, but no, to answer your question, no, because it's never been the, the same. Mm-hmm. That's why I said those miles, 1850, 1900. Right. You, if you just take a snapshot at each of those mile posts, you're going to see a totally different business. Right. You're not going to see the same business. 1850 was the furniture maker. Right. You know, uh, in, in 1900, you have the establishment. You have the, the trade associations are organized by them. Mm-hmm. 1950, you have, hey, we got it made because people come to us. Mm-hmm. This is a rite of passage. Mm-hmm. They're not going to blow off the direct cremation. I don't even think the word was invented then. Who knows? Yeah. So And it's chained 2000. That's our new milestone. And we're still applying 1950 business models to the 2000 mile post. Mm-hmm. And we have to do it. Part of it is, yeah, we have to get out there. We have to explain ourselves why there's a need. Mm-hmm. And it's not much different than any other. Look, lawyers. I, me- I remember back in the days when it was against the rules for a lawyer to advertise. Sure. Considered yeah. unprofessional and everything. Mm-hmm. And now, of course, they advertise. How can you? Well, there are a lot of lawyers, I'm sure, that says, I've never had to advertise. I've been a member of the bar for 30 years. I've mm-hmm. never advertised. What are you mm-hmm. nuts? Well, now everybody advertises on TV and everything else. It's the same thing here. This this idea, you got to get out there. And if if, and this is, I think, maybe more true with, with, with the, the c- c- cemeteries. If you, if you manage your own a cemetery and you say, my business is to bury people, that's what I do, mm-hmm. you're going to be hurting yourself. Mm-hmm. Uh, particularly with the rise of cremation. Cause cremation doesn't stop a traditional funeral or a traditional burial, traditional moralization. It provides options. Mm-hmm. If you choose cremation, all these other things suddenly become optional. Mm-hmm. People are just exercising their options. They're not going against or refusing to have a traditional funeral service or burial or anything else. They have options. Mm-hmm. And but you just you have to make the case why maybe you want to exercise some of these options, what value there is for you, for your family, now, for the future. And you gotta get out there. So if you're not a well-known figure in your town or community as the funeral director of the cemetery, and we have some members who are wonderful at that. And th- that's a short answer to a very involved question and a very involved answer. You need to get out there. Mm-hmm. Cremation is not the problem. Cremation is just an option. Mm-hmm. And there's no reason why you can't put in all the other components of what we would call a traditional funeral, traditional interment. Mm-hmm. But if people don't know for nothing, mm-hmm. why would they do that? Right. Well, it's up to us. If, if we don't tell them the value of what we have, how, how are they going to find out? Thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. Thank you for letting me spout off. Many thanks to Bob Fells for joining me today on Death at Sec. If you're interested in learning more about the topics discussed in today's episode, please visit our website at www.deathetsec.com to check out the show notes. 
please also visit the website to submit any questions that you have, and we'll try to address them on a future episode. Once again, thank you to David Childers and Riley Sherman for the music heard in today's episode. Our audience has grown about 30 to 40% every week since we've gotten started, and I am incredibly grateful to all of our listeners. If you like Death at Sec, I hope you'll subscribe to the podcast and give us a good rating on iTunes so that we can continue to get the word out. Thanks for listening.